Well, good evening, everybody, and thank you for being here. My name is uh, Dr. Karen Eifler, and together with Father Charlie Gordon, we direct the Garaventus Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American Culture. This is our first public event of the new semester, so we're happy to see some familiar faces and some new faces. And uh, just a couple of announcements before I introduce our speaker. If you're a K-12 teacher in any school, uh, one of the things we're able to do at all of our events is offer for you um, complimentary professional development units and the sign up for that is on a table outside. Also, if you like what you hear tonight, and I think you will, and you want to know more about what's happening in the Garaventa Center, um, you can sign up for our electronic mailing list. Um, out there, we just need a good email address for you, and that includes a weekly podcast of Father Charlie's reflections on the Sunday Gospel in the sweet spot of listening, about four, four and a half minutes. So that's available to you. And then on our table over there under the clock, we have uh, flyers out for our next several events. We have um, talks about Lord of the Rings. We have uh, play panels and wine and cheese receptions and lots of fa fascinating lectures bringing diverse voices really from all over the world and so we have um, materials for, for you to check out and we hope to see you at some of those. But tonight we're here for Graydon Royce and I want to tell you that one of the big misconceptions about arts critics is that their job is to find all the things that actors and artists and other performance form performers are doing wrong and point those goofs out as snarkily as possible to the public. The truth is that a good critic tries to train audiences' ears and eyes to see and to hear all that's possible, to open up works and help us really behold all that's there rather than shut them down. A critic worth his or her salt doesn't, they open things up, they don't uh, shut them down. And that's a big part of what we strive to do in Catholic education, to keep asking questions and honing our instruments so that they can better approach the truth that's there at the end of our quest. That's why we're so delighted to welcome Graydon Royce to the University of Portland and the Garavena Center. Working in many capacities over his 40-year career at the Minneapolis Star Tribune, Graydon earned a rock-solid reputation for making the world of drama and music accessible to audiences from the most prestigious theaters in the city to those incarcerated in a woman's prison. He's a man of deep faith, which is apparent in the dignity and respect that he affords the people that he writes about. In the Garavena Center, we're always looking for that sweet spot of intersection between lives of faith and popular culture, and we're pretty sure that Graydon Royce is going to help us illuminate that tonight. So please join me, join me in welcoming Graydon Royce. Thank you, Karen. <clears throat> Thank you, Karen. And... Um, I want to thank my old friend Bon Latin for uh, bringing me here um, to Portland. For years I've watched uh, Portlandia on TV and I've laughed at how absurd this city was in, in the portrayal of the show, not in real life. But uh, So now I've been here and um, 
I realized that, uh, once again, the best fiction always has a healthy germ of truth uh, in it. So I would need to spend a little more time here, but it uh, strikes me that Portland is almost as ridiculous as Minneapolis. Um, I doubt that you've been paying attention, but Minneapolis is somehow obsessed with Portland. Did anybody know that? Probably not, no. Um, our former mayor uh, would love to bellow about how his latest initiative would make Minneapolis the best biking city in America. And the competition, of course, was Portland. Portland. Right. Portland, he said, is just the name of a city street in Minneapolis. It's not the competition anymore. And one of my friends at the Star Tribune, which was located on Portland Avenue, uh, used to write very glowingly about Portland's light rail system and how the Twin Cities really needed to follow suit. This was several years ago. So we have done so. We have our own light rail system now in Minneapolis in the Twin Cities. And uh, as is so typical, we are both um, very uh, puffed up with pride about this accomplishment, and yet we are self-flagellating about how we must do more. There's just something about the Twin Cities that has that. We're never happy. Maybe it's the weather. I don't know. Um, it was four degrees when I got on the plane yesterday in Minneapolis, um, so I'm very happy to have a respite from that. Um, and I'm also, of course, uh, very happy to be away from Minneapolis right now because of the Super Bowl is there, which is uh, a new kind of insanity that uh, comes to our town. And my only regret is that I can't stay here through the weekend. But the Super Bowl is a perfect illustration of the Twin Cities psyche because we are so proud that the nation is turning its complete attention and focus to the Twin Cities for a couple of weeks, and yet we are deathly afraid that some celebrity is going to tell the truth about what it's really like to be there in January, and that once again we will be made a national punching bag as a really cold, uncomfortable place to be. We love to love ourselves and we love to hate ourselves for staying in such a frigid hellhole. So the Twin Cities are indeed cold, but, but, the, uh, but they, and that's another thing, we're constantly referring to, um, we don't want to offend St. Paul, so we can't just say Minneapolis. We have to call them the Twin Cities. So we constantly are referring to the singular as, a, or the plural as a singular. So please forgive my grammar. But the Twin Cities are one of the best theater towns in America. New York and Chicago are the only places that I've experienced where the art thrives as much as it does in my hometown. Los Angeles is an odd place. It is a movie town. And uh, the theater that goes on in Los Angeles primarily is done as a, um, uh, a showcase for an actor to get a TV show. So come and see my show. Come and see my one-man show. Um, I'll be at the little theater, the Odyssey, out in Santa Monica on the, on, uh, for a couple of weeks. And uh, bring all your TV agents, because if I'm lucky, I'll get you know, some sitcom on Fox. So the Twin Cities uh, is much more about theater. New York is much more about theater. Chicago is much more about theater. In 2001, I wrote a long story in the Star Tribune about the local scene. And I did some research that showed the Twin Cities rank second only to New York for the most theater tickets sold per capita. 
Chicago obviously sells more, but among the U.S. cities routinely touted as theater meccas, that would be Boston, Atlanta, Philadelphia, Denver, Seattle, um, the Twin Cities had by far the most robust theater scene, like a welterweight moving up to fight as a light heavyweight. We punch far above our weight class in terms of theater and other forms of culture in the Twin Cities. We have two world-class orchestras, the Minnesota Orchestra and the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, which just won a Grammy, by the way, for Best Small Ensemble. <clears throat> we have two distinguished museums, the Walker Art Center and the Minneapolis Institute of Arts. We have one of the top ten opera companies in the United States, which won a Pulitzer for music in 2012 for the uh, musical or the opera Silent Night. And we also have a thriving book publishing scene. And you can hear top quality choral music nearly every week of the year in the Twin Cities. I reviewed theater in the Twin Cities for 18 years, which was almost half of my career at the Star Tribune. And for 10 years, I also wrote about classical music, arts, and public policy, which included covering the legislature when there were issues that affected the arts. And I wrote generally about the artists of all stripes and culture that make up the cultural DNA of the Twin Cities. I routinely reviewed the Guthrie, which used to be the largest regional theater in the regional nonprofit theater in the country until it was passed up by Oregon Shakespeare Festival. So it's, well, it wasn't Portland, but once again, Oregon has, um, I'm sorry, Oregon, not Oregon. <laughs> Oregon has rained on our parade once again. I reviewed the Chanhassen Dinner Theater, which is the largest dinner theater in the nation. Uh, the Children's Theater Company, which is the largest children's theater company in the United States. I reviewed Broadway tours that came through both Minneapolis and St. Paul. But the greatest work that I saw in Minneapolis-St. Paul took place in the smaller and mid-sized theater companies. Um, these are 150, 200, 400 seat houses um, that are, uh, we have probably uh, 12 to 13 of them in the Twin Cities and they, um, there could be as many as eight or nine new shows opening each month um, in town. So it was a lot. I figured that I reviewed about 1,200 productions in my career, roughly three shows a week for 18 years. So check my math, that's why I'm, in the humanities and not in science. Um, but I think that's correct. I figured it out last night. <clears throat> Those 1,200 productions included many really amazing experiences. And it also included many evenings in which I found myself walking back to the car in the howling wind of January, muttering to myself, how did I get myself into this? What wrong turn did I take? Why did I not go into business? Why did I not listen to my father? Why am I doing this? What happened that has me sitting through a dreadful two and a half hours and then shivering on a city street walking back? And all the while I had to contemplate, was this theater that I had just seen good or bad? And how do we mean good or bad? How do we understand theater, which is the art form that uses all the other art forms? Theater is literature. Theater is design. Theater is visual art. It is spectacle. Theater is music. It's dance. And fundamentally, theater uses as its primary expression 
not a page, not a painting, not a piece of music. It uses the human body, the voice, the emotions, the spirit. So how do we judge that? A mentor who was a, a dear friend of mine who in his early years had been on Broadway and had toured extensively across the United States, had a really good career, had written uh, dozens of plays before he came back home and taught at the University of Minnesota. And he once told me in an interview um, when I was talking to him, I asked him what he loved about theater. And he told me something that has really stuck with me uh, to this day. Theater is not about theater, he said, or rarely is. There are some uh, famous uh, backstage dramas, such as uh, Noises Off. But theater is not about theater. Theater is about psychology. Theater is about um, Hamlet asking himself, who am I? What should I be? Theater is about relationships. It's about the two tramps in Waiting for Godot and the connection that they have. Theater is about religion. Theater is about history. It's about social dilemmas. Theater is about so much family trauma, nobility, villainy, and fundamentally it is about the indescribable state of being a human in this world. So how do we judge what is good and what is bad? Or is it even important what I think is good or bad? Does it, does it matter? I, ho I hope it does. I believe it does because I spent a long time doing it and I believe I made a difference in the Twin Cities theater scene. But the question is, what is good or what is bad? And how can we get past that to discover something more about the theater that we see? I, um, I attended a show last night at Portland Center Stage, Astoria Part Two. I didn't see uh, Astoria Part One, obviously, but um, but I did see at Astoria, this this show that's on right now. And at intermission, I was hanging around outside the restroom, and I heard one patron say to another, uh, greeting somebody, saying, "Hey, good play, isn't it? Don't you think it's a good play?" And I thought, man, how many times have I heard that in my long career? Um, at intermission, as though that settles it, that somebody said, good play. But it's always so much more complex than good and bad. The performance last night felt like a historic pageant. It was not necessarily a play itself. It held the emotion at an arm's distance. It was a proclamation of a story about the European-American settlement of the great Northwest. And through direct address, oratory, and episodic scenes, the play told this epic tale. It was well-spoken. It was a bit Greek in its construction and the use of what we would call a chorus, a Greek chorus. But I didn't feel much because the form of the piece resembled occasionally a lecture rather than theater, rather than something real. I learned something about Portland, I learned something about Astoria, I learned something about the Northwest, but I was really provoked by contemplating again what the American story is about, and that is trampling onto native land, abusing the good nature of native populations, and destroying a way of life.
I don't think that was the intention of the play, which seemed to be much more about celebrating the amazing accomplishment of these Europeans who were on this harrowing adventure in Oregon. And the literature talked about how uh, this almost didn't happen, that it was just almost uh, a, a, a moment of, of, of accident they were, that they were able to establish this location here near Portland. And what a great thing that was. And that I should be overjoyed about this story, about settlers establishing an American presence in the Pacific Northwest. But all I could think about as I watched it was, once again, to think how you ruined a population, how you ruined another people. So is that provocation good or bad? It made me think, certainly. But it also made me a little concerned that in 2018, that we are not a bit more objective about this thing. And it disappointed me that the exploitation went unexamined in the story, in the piece. It seemed that at this point in our history, we should be looking at that. Is that good or bad? Um, it's a flaw in the play. Some people may like it. Some people may disagree with it. But that's how I saw it. That's what it provoked me to think. And that, in itself, the provocation, is a good thing. The fact that it was unexamined is a bad thing. A mentor once told me that, as a critic, I might want to prepare for a performance by reading the script of the show, maybe reading about the production itself, or to read about the play's history, if it had one. And then, he said, you take your seat in the audience, and you forget everything that you've read. You forget everything that you prepared for in this show. And you sit and you allow yourself to have an experience. You allow yourself to be moved, to be annoyed, to be provoked, to be educated. And then somehow you take that internal experience, that visceral reaction, and you articulate that into words. And I have always carried with me the wisdom of his, uh, of, of his, of his comments. Years ago, I reviewed a show at the Minnesota Fringe Festival. Now, the Fringe Festival is an 11-day festival packed with performances. None of them can be longer than an hour. And uh, they have them at 15 venues throughout uh, Minneapolis, near the University of Minnesota, a lot of them. Um, today, there are uh, 170 shows that... Uh, are, are performed in the Fringe Festival, and they give about 800 performances. Uh, each show has about five showings. Um, so you get about 800 performances over the course of the festival, 11-day uh, festival. And again, we are very proud of this. We love to puff up our chests and let the world know, including Portland, that we have the largest unjuried festival in the country. That is, there is not a panel that is deciding this play is good enough, this play is not good enough, therefore this gets in, this does not get in. And let me tell you, uh, it's really obvious many times that it's unjuried. 
It's amazing sometimes how long 45 minutes can feel. Uh, it is an anguished lifetime. But the Fringe Festival takes place in the summer, so you don't have to freeze if you want to come there and see it. You just have to suffer through the heat and the humidity. <clears throat> but in this particular show, um, I and two other people were the audience. Okay? So there were three of us. And we jammed into the back seat of a Mazda Compact. And we drove around Minneapolis as the driver worked his way through the city streets to a particular street corner outside uh, a business called Sex World. And there, he solicited a prostitute who was, of course, another actor. So no laws were broken in the, um, in the conduct of this play. But they then drove, so, so we witnessed this solicitation, we witnessed this, this action from sitting in the back seat, and then we went, to a, we went to a parking lot where they came as close to an illegal act as they could. That scene ended. The three of us then got out and got into another car, a Lincoln Town car, so we had a little more space, it was a nicer, bigger, bigger car, but it stank like body odor which mostly was coming from the woman who was driving. Well, it was coming from her, you could, you could tell. There was also in the front seat a guy dressed as a cheerleader with a blonde wig who asked us if his hair looked bad. Tell me the truth, he kept saying. Tell me the truth, he asked us. The third person in the front seat wore a Stetson, a holster, and a toy pistol, which he threatened us with. The driver kept saying how her head was about to explode. My head is about to explode. My head is about to explode, which was really encouraging because we were zooming down this busy street. We drove into a parking lot, and the cheerleader and the sheriff got out of the car, wrestled on the ground for the gun, fell to the pavement, and they were hollering at each other. And we in the back seat were watching people in the apartment buildings around us look out their windows and see what is going on down here? What's going on? It was uh, a little nerve-wracking. The kind of thing that if it was really happening in real life, you, you know, your kids are goofing off or something, you say, get the hell back in the car, get in the back seat, we're going home. But this was theater. So we grew uh, pretty anxious for these fools to get back into the car and get out of there. It was kind of like I was back in college, and I was out on a lark on a Friday night, just driving around town, having fun, goofing off. We went back to the parking lot, and we spent one more trip in a third car that night. In this one, a single driver was talking about the end of the world as though he was an evangelical preacher. And he would open the window, and he would shout out at passersby, the world is ending, the world is ending. And there we were in the back seat, completely vulnerable to the reaction of the people who were watching on the street as we walked by. So was this good theater? The acting was rambling. It was chaotic. There was no set, really. There were very minimal costumes. But the experience and the energy was thrilling and memorable. We felt alive. 
We were startled. We were shaken. We were made to feel alive. And that is what you hope from theater. I recall another show by a company in Minneapolis that uses actors who uh, live with disabilities. Um, it was a cabaret. It featured several Down syndrome um, actors. Uh, it had a few performers with emotional and physical struggles. Um, all these were clients of a program that uh, during the day would uh, get these people work but then they also used theater as a means to express who they were, who they are. And one of the performers was a, a man named Tom, and he had suffered a traumatic brain injury, brain stem injury, so it was quite profound. And uh, this happened in, a, in an accident. And he was nicknamed Tom the Frog because he spoke in a froggy voice. And in this cabaret, Tom sang a song that he had written with the show's musical director about a night when Tom was walking down a street, very unsteady because of his injury. This is how he, and he stood, as he stood at the microphone, you could tell that this was a, an act of will to even be standing there. And a car slowed down, and some guys in the car shouted at him, hey, you a drunk? And Tom sang this lyric. I told them, no, I have brain damage. What's your excuse? Now, this is one of the most memorable evenings that I had spent in the theater. Was it because Tom had a brilliant, beautiful voice? Was it because he sang like Hugh Jackman? Was it because he could articulate his words like Larry Olivier? No, no, and no. In fact, quite the opposite. His delivery was halting. His voice was sometimes raspy, hard to hear. But what he gave us as an audience was an honest, raw struggle of another human being trying to express his nobility, his dignity, his vulnerability, his courage, the perseverance of a spirit to live on this earth. That was theater. It had nothing to do with good or bad. It had everything to do with honoring a life. The best theater demands us to enter its own reality. It demands that I enter the world that is being portrayed on stage. So often I can see an actor who is begging for laughs, who is playing to the audience, and I think you're stepping outside the integrity of the character. You are stepping outside the integrity of the moment. And suddenly, it doesn't seem genuine anymore. It can ruin the moment because it's not authentic. It's not genuine. It has not come from the interior. It does not trust the play. Now, I'm not arguing against experimentation or big exaggerated performances, but it has to feel real. 
you have to believe that this really is a person committed to this characterization. Surrender the performance, surrender your performance to the concept of the play. Otherwise, find a different script. One of my favorite playwrights is Anton Chekhov. Um, a critic colleague and I have a uh, kind of a continuing argument about Chekhov. He uh, finds him boring because the plays are about the Russian bourgeoisie who do not much more than sit around and talk and talk about life. To which I say, yeah, that's kind of the point. This is real life. Chekhov captured the mundanity of life, which is where most of us live. And he showed it to us in a piece. He took a sliver of real life and he showed us how did he make drama out of what is such kind of an ordinary act of life. Chekhov's plays are so brilliant because he wrote about people in transition. He wrote about people who are facing the dilemma. In the cherry orchard, a family needs to decide whether they can keep their shambling old cherry orchard, which has been in, the, been in the family for generations, can we keep operating it at a loss? Or do we have to change? Do we have to sell the property to pay the debts? Can we let go of it? How do we let go of it? We have to let go of it. We can't let go of it. This is our identity. Now, how often have I heard someone talk about how a group of siblings <clears throat> is arguing over what to do with the family cabin because mom and dad can't live there anymore, they can't manage it anymore, they've grown to a certain, certain point where it's just too much. So do we in the next generation want to own it? Can we, can we use it? Can we afford it? Should we just sell it? Well, no, we can't sell it. I have too many memories of that place. I remember being there as a kid. It's where we grew up. It's where we brought our kids when they were little. <clears throat> we can't afford to keep it, and we can't afford not to keep it. That's the beauty of Chekhov. That is a human dilemma. I've heard that exact conversation at dinner parties and thought to myself, there it is. That's the cherry orchard again. Chekhov brilliantly observed the human condition through real-life dilemmas. Henrik Ibsen, who wrote at about the same time as Chekhov from the turn of the 20th century, created naturalism on stage, the realism. And this was a, quite a, quite a um, large, uh, he and Chekhov both, this was quite a large departure from how uh, theater had been performed before in epic style. He showed not, Ibsen did, he showed not epic performances, not epic uh, stylized heroes, but people who were in the grips of their own lives. The play Hedda Gobbler finds a woman who is contemplating her own fate. How riveting and tragic it is to watch a brilliant actor find the internal turmoil in this character. Nora in A Doll's House is the prototypical feminist, which in Ibsen's day absolutely shocked people. We don't understand quite how profound that was at that time. But even today, 
A really honest performance of A Doll's House creates a real world in which Nora, we understand Nora's suffering and her courage in striking out on her own. It's one of the most beautiful plays that we have. Eugene O'Neill wrote from the depths of a troubled spirit, his own, about his mother who suffered from drug addiction. She was a morphine addict. And about his father who had traded a career of acting brilliance for cheap money in unchallenging roles. That eroded his soul and turned him into an alcoholic. O'Neill himself was, of course, an alcoholic. Tennessee Williams wrote from a broken heart about how he, as a young man, had abandoned his sister and his mother, a pain that he never really resolved in his life. He wrote beautifully, lyrically, in The Glass Menagerie about the young man, Tom, who goes away, leaves his home. It's one of the most moving plays we have in the canon today. Edward Albee wrote complex and weird parables that came from his own sense of abandonment as a baby. The play about the baby, which is uh, from about 2003 or 2004, is absolutely brilliant. What does it all mean? Hard to say. But something happened in that play. August Wilson, who I think is the greatest American playwright of the last 40 years, took the specific lives of African Americans who lived in Pittsburgh and created universal moments of realism. The Piano Lesson, which was a lovely play, has a family that wants to sell the family piano so it has enough money to pursue certain dreams. Once again, the cherry orchard. Once again, an echo of Lorraine Hansberry's A Raisin in the Sun, in which the character says, give me the money so I can start my own business. And the mother says, no, if we have money, we're going to educate our children. <clears throat> Tension in the family. These are real-life situations. Arthur Miller wrote in very muscular strokes about politics, such as the crucible, and about the erosion of the American dream in Death of a Salesman. One of my favorite new playwrights is Sarah Rule, who takes these fantastical journeys through history and her own imagination to muse on the oddness of life. Stage Kiss is a play that wonders about the reality of actors kissing. Is it real? Does it, do you feel something? Is there something going on when you kiss another person on stage, another actor on stage? How can it not be real? One of the best stories I ever remember about it, uh, kissing on stage, was in 2007, an actor from uh, Minneapolis called Laura Osnes um, was on a, a, won a national competition to play the lead role in um, Greece on, a, in, on Broadway then, that year. And I went to uh, New York to interview her while she was uh, getting ready to rehearse. And um, her husband was there, and I said, so how did you two meet? And they told me the story that they were at children's theater and they were in a they were in a production of Aladdin, and that there was a moment when they kissed on stage. And her, the husband said, 
Oh, and I remembered that. It was such a beautiful moment. It was just right then that I said, oh, I just love this woman. And she looked at him and said, what? That was on stage. That wasn't real. And I thought, she's going to go places in this business. That is a cold-blooded killer. (laughs) Sarah Rule also wrote the uh, vibrator play, which um, concerns exactly what it sounds like it concerns. But it explores historic attitudes toward women's sexuality. She's really one of the great new writers uh, on the scene today. Again, art, theater, does not exist for its own sake. It is about everything else. I remember seeing the Mona Lisa years ago in Paris and finally understanding, okay, now I see what the deal is. When you see it in person, when you have that encounter in real life, you see the dimension, you understand what it's like. I had the same reaction when I looked at Rembrandt's The Rape of Lucretia, at the Minneapolis Institute of Art a few years ago. The perspective, the dimension, the use of darkness, the position of the hand, the dot of light in the eyes, the character of the mouth, all provoked this emotional reaction that only the great art can provoke. The Sistine Chapel has this epic scale, but in that ceiling, One feels the imagination, the story, the soul of Michelangelo. The great ballets and operas depend on virtuosic performances to convey their brilliance. This is a different animal, right? These works, such as Tosca or La Boheme or The Magic Flute, Norma, require brilliance to express the emotional power. And here there is good and bad, and there is a big difference. A terrific opera can sweep you along. A badly performed opera is one of the longest nights of your life. In 2015, I went to Havana with the Minnesota Orchestra, which was the first major U.S. symphony to visit Cuba after President Obama had announced his diplomatic initiative to open to Cuba. It was one of the great, probably the greatest opportunity of my professional life. And uh, I got to write um, every day from there. And the orchestra played Beethoven's Eroica with a ferocious passion and a sonic unity that was just indescribable on the first night. And then on the second night, the conductor, the music director, Ozma Vanska, walked on stage and he motioned to the audience, which filled the National Theater, to stand up. Everyone stand up. Then he led the orchestra in a performance of the rarely performed Cuban National Anthem. And then they played the American National Anthem. The Cuban Anthem comes from the revolution of Jose Marte in the late 19th century, not the Castro Revolution. And it was rarely ever played in Cuba. And in that moment, I was reminded of how music exists where words do not exist, where words fail. There was no verbal vocabulary as we all stood together, and we felt the complex strains of national pride, of understanding each other, of a common vocabulary, of reaching across our barriers. Music had unlocked 
an emotion we could all share in that room. Art had summoned up private feelings, again, to each individual, but somehow had a universal depth. As Shakespeare wrote, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. This is life. I often tell people that theater and church are closely related. Part of that is obvious. I mean, the two of them did grow up together, even if the relationship is fraught. In the Middle Ages, uh, roving bands of artists would go from town to town performing what were called uh, mystery plays and the, magic, and, and the magic plays. And these were stories that used a biblical uh, story, and they would perform these in, in towns. That was the theater of that time. But of course, the two have an uneasy relationship, too. But they are very much the same. And this is what I mean when I say that both theater and church have a common endeavor. That is to gather people in a room, much like this. Present them with a ritual to consider, to watch, to listen to, to ponder, to wonder about. And through the course of an hour or two, the aim is that these people will somehow share the energy among them. To feel a purpose in the spirit, to feel transformed. I would hope and pray that both theater and the church aim to send people out into the world more able to understand our place with other human beings. Whether that is accomplished through virtuosity or by the raw, vulnerable honesty that I remember Tom the Frog sharing or sitting in the back of that car. Theater is not so much a matter of good or bad. It is a matter of us all sharing the knowledge that we are broken human beings, wanting our hearts to be touched, to be healed, to feel something, to belong to something greater than ourselves. I just want to really thank uh, Karen and um, uh, Father Charlie for their kindness and um, all of you for coming uh, tonight and welcoming me to Portland. It's been a real honor and a real privilege to be here. Thank you so much. We have time for a couple of questions if you'd like to ask uh, Graydon anything or respond or probe. Yes. Would I be correct in thinking that part of what you're saying is that as you're communicating to the audience, you're either describing for an audience who has not yet seen the play yeah. what might be, or for the audience who has seen the play, what they fail to pick up. Yeah. Uh, what they fail to pick up, what they did pick up. Um, yes, it's a little bit of both. It's like writing about a baseball game. I mean, you go to a baseball game, you still read the story the next day. You were there. I mean, you saw the whole thing, but you want to read about it. You want to read about, oh, I saw that. I was there. I was at this, uh, I was at the performance the other night. 
I wonder what uh, Graydon thinks about that. Um, you try to create a lively discussion about the play. You try to give um, the person who saw it an accurate rendition of what you uh, what you saw on stage. The, the, the first rule of being a journalist is to be a good reporter. Um, you try to give a good analysis that talks about did it succeed, did it not succeed, and why did it not succeed, or why did it succeed? And you have to articulate those visions. And you do all that with the idea that you are speaking both to that person that saw the show, but you're also uh, speaking to the person who probably is not going to be able to get to the show. But they should be able to read your review and have an idea of what happened that night. You should be able to Within, you know, within bounds, you don't want to say, yeah, by the way, Hamlet dies in the last act. Uh, or everybody, that's an obvious example, but no spoilers, please. You, know? you don't want to spoil it for somebody who's going to see it, but you do want to give a descriptive sense of the, of the experience and the performance that somebody who is not going to see the show still would be interested in reading just because they want to read about that show. You should, have, you should be that good of a journalist or, as, or a reporter. So, a little bit of both. What would you say is the distinguishing characteristics between the film, a movie, yeah. and theater, and a play? Well, um, where do you see a film? You see it on a flat screen, right? Yeah. Theater is a live person, um, and, and live persons. Um, I think that, that it's three-dimensional, and I think that that has um, a huge difference. Once again, I don't want to do the sports thing all the time, but watching a game on TV, um, which some people may prefer, frankly, but it is a flat experience. Being in the stadium, being next to people, watching these live athletes running around, that's a real deal. Um, why do people go to a speech uh, by a politician? Um, it's not to hear that politician because they can hear him in many forms, him or her. Um, they want to see that person. They want to see her live. There's something seeing, you know, just the seeing a real person, and that's really. I, I think that's the main difference: is that sense that it's a live performance, and. Um, we're all in this together, and there's nothing separating us like uh, a flat screen. Yes? They have a place here called Third Rail, and they show films of plays. Yeah. Um, War Horse, for instance. Yep. Um, that was so much better than being in a theater because you could see everything, and it gave the real impression of live theater. Mm -hmm. And they do a pretty good job at whoever films that. I think either the Irish National or the. Or the yeah, the, uh, yep. Yeah, um, the. Uh, and this is, this is uh, part of the deal with uh, new technology and the way the world is changing. And uh, I'm of an age where I don't understand, you know, everything that you guys understand um, so much better. But. Uh, Technology is really being used effectively uh, these days to present live theater. The Metropolitan Opera has done, has done this for a number of years, uh, performing live HD broadcasts um, of, of operas at the Met. Um, now the um, 
um, it's the National in uh, in London that does these uh, performances, uh, does performances of, of, uh, of shows. I remember seeing one recently of um, uh, uh, Pinter's uh, The Birthday Party, and um, it was terrific theater. They have there there you can see uh, performances from uh, the Moscow stage, which is really a trip. I mean, um, Russia, for whatever its other faults or attributes, really suffers its theater. It is beautiful, beautiful stuff. Um, but performances like that are new. I mean, th this this kind of thing uh, is, is new. There was a theater in law in. Um, in New York, a small theater that probably 150 seats, but they uh, live streamed a performance one night, and they, were, uh, they hit something like 80,000 people. I mean, you know, you're never going to get that kind of an audience uh, showing up. But um, so this is a this is a new trend. This is something that's really really happening, and it's. Um, purists don't like it because it's not live. But it is, in its own way, a representation of live. It's not. Um, the camera can do so many things. The camera can get so close. The camera can be so intimate. The camera can focus right in on a face, and you don't see. You may not see that in a live in in, in, a, in a live theater. But um, this is a new way for theater to reach uh, a wider audience, and um, it can be kind of thrilling. Yes. I just tapped off the observation, but that is filming of live theater. Yeah. And that's what I think makes it so wonderful. Yeah, that's, and I think that that's what distinguishes it from um, uh, filming a movie, um, that, that, uh, that that's the case. So, that's it. I would it. be remiss if I didn't know that um, you were raving about Sarah Rule, one of our bright voices in theater, and... Uh, UP's theater department is doing her Eurydice uh, mm. as their next main stage show. And the Garavina Center is hosting a wine and cheese reception for the Saturday performance. And we'll have a panel of um, folks talking a little bit about things to see and look for in that show, kind of opening things right. up like a, right. like a credit would. Uh, but that's happening right here. And if you're a student, it's totally free. You can't beat that price. And if you're a community member, it's just about... Um, free. So that's happening just right across the way in Mago Hunt, um, March 3rd. Okay? Will you help me thank uh, Greg Royce for his... Again, if you're a student here as part of a class, sign-ups will be right outside the door at a table. Um, pick up some of our flyers over there, and I believe there's a few uh, goodies still to be uh, taken home and consumed as if you're a starving student. Okay? Thanks for coming out tonight. That was just right, and I really